0: As we continue our worship, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John, chapter 4. And we'll look together at verses 13 through 21. 1 John, chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. If you're visiting with us, feel free to use the blue Bible and the pew pocket in front of you. And you'll find that text on page uh, 1023. 1 John, chapter 4. Looking at verses 13 to 21. Let me read for us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. On February the 4th, 2005, in a small dorm room on the campus of Harvard University, two roommates would launch a website that will be forever remembered in the annals of internet history. Everybody's whispering my punchline before I even get to it. (laughs) Yes, Facebook. (laughs) The site is fascinating because it was originally limited to Harvard University students. Then it would expand to other college students in the Boston area, then to other Ivy League schools, then to most universities in the United States and Canada, and within two years, it would be available to virtually everyone in the entire world. In fact, just a few months ago, 2.27 billion billion people in the world were recorded as regularly using the service. The mission, to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. It's a noble mission. In its attempts to build community and bring people closer together, Facebook has offered us several tools, and that's what they are, they're tools, such as the status update, the like button, comment thread, the profile picture, and one of the most interesting, the relationship status. While the feature has largely fallen out of use, an entire generation of Americans, you may not be aware of this, understood this feature to be the official recognition of a relationship. For millions of couples and curious onlookers, the question was no longer, is it official? But is it Facebook official? Now, for all who ever used that tool, or maybe you never even knew it existed until 60 seconds ago, (laughs) the relationship status feature, deep down, appeals to us all. We all know what it's like to pursue or ponder clarity in a relationship. What grandparent never wonders how things really are between them and the grandchildren? that don't call as much as they want. What husband or wife never seeks out clarity for where things are with their spouse? Or how about that child who can't help but wonder if daddy is angry or mommy is frustrated with him or her, especially after a long day at work? Or... How about that tortured single wondering if or when they'll find the one? It's relational clarity. We long for that. And wouldn't it be fun just to know our real-time relationship status with everyone around us? Like if there was just a little dialogue box that kind of floated above everyone's head and it just immediately clarified like where we stand with them. Or maybe it'd be frightening. And all this had me wondering, what would it look like to enjoy relational clarity with God at all times? Whenever we wanted to know, we could just see it in the, the clearest of print. I mean, it's one thing for us to claim to be in a relationship with him, but if he chose, what do you think he would post of us? Friend? in a relationship, or it's complicated. You see, just in case you haven't been with us in our study of First John, clarifying our divine relationship status is what this book is all about. Many of John's readers seemed to have doubted their relationship with God unnecessarily, and on the other hand, there were some who were confident of their relationship erroneously. And so they needed the divine relationship status update. The, the apostle writes to them to set the relational record straight. And ever since chapter 3, verse 11 of First John, he has been telling us over and over again that one of the ways that you can know that you really have this relationship with God is through the means of love... For other people. Not just love for God, but love for other people. In fact, if I were to ask you to tell me what the love chapter is in the Bible, how would you answer that question? Somebody can answer out loud. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Because we have three or four verses that mention the word love 13 times. But beginning here in chapter 4, we actually have the word love mentioned 27 times. (laughs) Here's the real love chapter. In the context of us being able to know where we really stand with the Lord. And so last week we saw that love was not only a reality, but it was also a responsibility. I mean, we're supposed to love. I mean, it should just naturally happen. But sometimes we need to remember that this is a command. It is an uphill battle. And so we looked at several motives for obeying this command of love. And maybe you remember those, but it's important that you do because where we are today is actually an extension of where we were last week. John says, all right, this command of love, it is a reality and a responsibility and you, you need to grasp the fact that you should be living out this command even when you don't feel like it because it actually conveys... The Father's nature, it corresponds with the Father's sacrifice and it completes the Father's love. That's what we saw last week. But there is another motive for showing love. There is another motive for continuing to believe in Jesus to the degree that it leads us to love other people and that is it gives us confidence of the Father's love. Confidence. Confidence. John uses the strongest language of the epistle to describe our closeness, the confidence that we can have of our relational closeness to God. He's going to speak of us abiding in God and God abiding in us. He's going to talk about us even having confidence on the day of judgment, having no fear of our relationship. And in case you've ever wondered about your relationship status with the Father, our text this morning offers us two proofs of our closeness to God. Two proofs of our closeness to God. The first is that confession of Christ as Lord proves our closeness to God. You want to know if you're close with God, just ask yourself the question, do I confess Christ as Lord? Look at verses 13 to 15. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, here's how to know we're close. Here's how to know that we're so close to God that we could say that he lives in us and that we actually live in him. The Father gave us his Spirit as evidenced by our confession of the apostolic testimony of the Son. That's what these verses are all about. You can know that you are that close to God because you have his Spirit. How do you know that you have his Spirit? Because you believe the apostolic testimony about Jesus. And how do you know you believe the apostolic testimony about Jesus? You confess him to be who he said he was. It's a doctrinal test. The language of closeness here is fascinating. We, we hear that word abide, abide, abide over and over and over again in John, and this will actually be in this particular paragraph. This will be the last time John will use it for the rest of the letter. But we've got to make sure we get it. I've said in previous times that the word abide could mean to be at home, to reside. And that is true. Jesus' illustration of abide in John 15, I think, is even better. He, he pictures the word abide with the metaphor of a vine and branches. Have you ever seen a grapevine before? I mean, looked at it closely? It's hard to really tell where the, the vine starts, stops, excuse me, and the branches begin. All you really know is that there's a difference between the vine and the branches, but somehow the one is in the other and the other is in the one. It is literally, agriculturally, the closest possible relationship that you could communicate. And that is exactly what he is saying here. He's saying, it's not just that we're close. It's not just that we're tight. It's not just that we're like this. (laughs) There is some sense in which it's greater than that. It's, It's that he abides in us and we abide in him. John typically uses this word, abide, to denote an inward, enduring, personal communion with God. If you want to get an idea of how close the relationship really is with God, this same word is used in John 14.10 to describe the relationship that God the Son had with God the Father. He says, I abide in Him he says that of you. He says that of me. We're that close. Things are that good. Really? In fact, he says it twice. He says it at the beginning of verse 13. He says it at the end of verse 15. He does not want you to miss that this is how close you and God really are. So how do we know that? How do we know that we're in that type of relationship, that we're that intimate? Well, it's because the Father has given us of his spirit. What does he mean by the spirit? How do we know that we have the spirit? Well, if you're reading this as a letter from start to finish, not breaking it up as we have over the last couple of months, you'll remember that the spirit was identified in a very tangible way. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Do you remember that? The Spirit is introduced there as the person from God who enables us to confess that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Spirit of truth. He's the one that leads people to listen to the apostles. And so God made himself at home in us when he gave us his Spirit. At salvation, God resides in you and brings you to reside in him through his Spirit. Theologians call this regeneration. It's the imparting of divine life. You were a spiritual corpse. Your dead heart could not receive Him. Your dead mind could not conceive of Him. And yet God gave us His Spirit, bringing us into the divine life. And how do we know then, though, that we have that Spirit? Because that all sounds fine and good. Because anybody could say, well, yeah, of course, I've got the Spirit. I'm spiritually alive. I'm spiritually enlightened. Well, this is where verse 14 becomes helpful. He says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, who's the we here? We here are the apostles. Look, turn with me back to 1 John chapter 1. And when you look at verses 1 through 3, you'll see another instance of what I'm calling the apostolic we. Sometimes John uses the word we to refer to all Christians. Sometimes he uses the word we to refer to the apostles. Look at verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Do you see what's going on there? Who was the one that heard and saw and touched? It wasn't you and me. We didn't have that experience. This was the apostles. And the Spirit enables us to recognize the confession or the teaching of the apostles as they were the ones who proclaimed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. That would be a ridiculous message to us, a notion that we could not possibly conceive of on our own, and yet the Spirit working in us enabled us to believe the apostolic testimony that's been recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. Personally, verse 15 is where it gets down to us. Whoever confesses then that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So, how do we know that we have the Spirit? How do we know that we're in this most intimate relationship with God? Is it when we feel that way? Is it when we speak in tongues? Do we know that we have the Spirit when we live perfectly sinless lives? Do we know that we have the Spirit when we have dreams and visions? Do we know that we have the Spirit when we can name and claim our every desire? No. We know we have the Spirit because we believe Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. Fully God and fully man. Our Lord and our God. We know we have the Spirit because we confess Jesus to be the only Savior of the world. A world that rebelled against him to which we all belonged. Friends, listen. Only those who belong to the Father through the Spirit truly confess Christ. Maybe an analogy would be helpful. Just, It's something similar to those who belong to a country being able to pledge their citizenship or pledge allegiance to it. I see this every time I watch the medal ceremony at the Olympics. I know we're right now in the Olympics dead zone. We're a long ways off before the next. I find that to be a fascinating time in the calendar year whenever it comes up because I will actually sit and schedule and watch sports that I would never watch any other time of the year. You do it too. It's a fun experience. You cheer for your team, your country, And maybe the most revealing aspect of at least my own patriotism in this is through the medal ceremony. As you know, when you win the gold, or when the victor wins the gold, he gets to hear his or her national anthem played over the speaker. The flag descends. Often they'll sing along. They'll put their hand over their heart. As they hear their own anthem in pride, It's great to be a part of this nation to which we belong, and and, and when America wins, just as an American, no offense to anyone else from another country, that feeling of pride swells up within me as well. I sing along. I hate to admit this in front of so many people, but I actually tear up. (laughs) What's going on there? When we have that experience, what is happening? It's because we are actually confessing the United States because it is the country to which we belong. As Americans, that anthem is our joy. This citizenship is our privilege. Look, no respect to our neighbors up north. We had a Canadian friend here the last two weeks. Um, I don't get the same feeling when I hear "O Canada." That's just me. I don't even know the words. And I don't care to. Because I'm not a citizen of that country. Hear me well. The confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is something that is unique to those who are in God. Those who are citizens of his kingdom. It is the anthem we sing. It is the pledge that we make. We are wholeheartedly in to this person of Jesus And that is something that we could not naturally do on our own. The Spirit had to come in and place us in new divine territory. He enables our heart to sing that anthem. How easy it is to neglect the uniqueness of the Christian confession. What it encompasses, what it entails. Confessing Jesus as Lord is a radical work of the Spirit that ensures us of our intimacy of God. Listen, friends, it is one thing to believe the historical record that Jesus was a good moral man. It's quite another thing to believe the apostolic testimony that he was and is the Son of God. It is one thing to confess Jesus as a Savior. It is totally different to confess Jesus as the Savior. It is one thing to have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is quite another to be confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Present tense verb in the text. Confessing Christ may be simple, but it is not simplistic. God works powerfully both before and after that initial confession of Christ as Lord. I mean, prior to the time that we ever spoke the words, Jesus is Lord, Jesus, you are who you say you are. There was this electing and there was this redeeming. And then after that, something was taking place. There was this sanctifying and there will be this glorifying. And it's all evidence through the confession. So you want to know if you're close? You want to know the relationship status between you and the Father? Here's the question. Do you believe that Christ is Lord? See, you can be confident today if the Holy Spirit has enabled you to first believe the apostolic Word. Is Jesus Christ the Savior of your world? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Is he the bedrock of your life? We just sang just a few minutes ago, Christ the solid rock. It'd be fascinating to know how many of you told the truth. Can you honestly sing that your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Do you really dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name? Is Christ actually the solid rock on which you stand? All other ground is sinking sand. You can be confident today, not only if the Spirit has enabled you to believe the apostolic word, but if the Spirit has enabled you to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And friends, please get this right. It is initial and ongoing. This assertion, this pledge of allegiance that you believe Jesus is who he says he is, there is a moment in time in which it takes place, for sure. There's some point in time where you will have had to have identified him with your mouth to be who he said he was, Romans 10, not. And you make that proclamation public through baptism. That's when you've actually physically identified yourself in alignment with him. I'm not saying that it saves you, but you're confessing at the time. You're identifying that this work of grace is taking place in your heart. But there's not only the initial confession, the proclamation, the assertion, the the, the pledge of allegiance that Jesus is who he says he is, but there's an ongoing confession. We continually confess him in communion. We're going to do that today. You know what you're doing every time you drink that cup, every time you place that cracker in your mouth? You're identifying once more with Jesus. You are singing the anthem. You are making the pledge of allegiance. I belong to him. We do it in the hymns that we sing about him. our church doesn't do this. It wouldn't bother me if we ever did. For some of you, it would weird you out. But did you know that a lot of Christians actually every week in their service confess Christ verbally, not in song, but through a liturgy? Something like the Apostles' Creed? You know what the Apostles' Creed is? For those of you who have come from those backgrounds, it is just people speaking the truth about who the Father and the Son and the Spirit are. That's worship. They are pledging allegiance once more to the risen Christ. They are saying that this is what they believe. We continue to confess him in personal praise. As we personally defend Jesus, when we hear other people run his name down, when we advance the gospel, when we teach Christ to our family, that is what it looks like to be confessing Christ. Hear me well friends this is a costly confession that only comes from those who are close to God If this is you if this is you you could be confident that you're in a deep abiding relationship with your heavenly father We have too much downplay the Christian confession I know how it is you read a text like this or yeah I know that I confess Jesus check Is it really The work of the Spirit isn't seen in chills and thrills, but in a settled conviction and conduct that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. It says something about you. Namely, through the Spirit, God is connected to you. You are closer to God than you could possibly imagine, as evidenced by the fact that you are confessing him as Lord. So this is really simple. Confessing Christ as Lord proves our closeness to God. That's the first proof. But that's not all. Completion of Christian love also proves our closeness to God. It isn't just confession, but it's also the completion of Christian love also proves our closeness to God. We're going to see that in verses 16 to 21. Now, I'm using the word completion of Christian love, assuming that at least 75% of you were here last week to know what I meant by that. But just in case you weren't, you can look back... To verse 12. John is assuming that you already know what the term completed love means. What you see there in your text in verse 12 actually isn't the word completed, it should say in the ESV the word perfected. Well, perfected, completed, they really mean the same things in Greek. Perfected, or the word behind it, literally means the end, the goal, the completion of something. Therefore, God's love is perfected in us, it is completed in us, it has reached its intended destination when we love one another. Ultimately, what it conveys to us is that we're not just reservoirs, we're rivers. We're not just containers of God's love, we're conduits. God's love has reached its fullest expression as it goes in us, through us, to others, So what is completed love? Completed love is God's love acted out to other believers. It is a conveyed love, if you will. So John's assuming that you still remember that because it was only literally one verse before the text that we decided to take today. Now, notice this. It's going to be a challenge, but I think that 85% of you are going to be able to hang with this. And that's reverse psychology, by the way. I would love for those who are in the 15 to say, no, I can get this. Look, everybody can get this. Now that you've got that background information, I want you to take a step into the most difficult portion of 1 John. You ready? Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. Now, pause. This is easy. This, so far, we're like, yeah, I get it. Uh, if we're in God's love, we, I mean, if we're in God, we believe him. God is love. We're abiding in that love. We rest in God. We have that close relationship. But here's where things get complicated. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The the easiest way I could say this is that completing Christian love or conveying Christ's love to others proves our closeness to God. Only those who know God's love will show God's love. Is that simple enough? Only those who know God's love will show God's love. If you do not know God's love, you cannot show it to others. We know and believe that Christ is Lord. We we know that God is love. and, And we have entered into that special love relationship. That's why he says we abide in that love. We are close to him. And we are so close to God. We are so confident in him that we will step into the day of judgment. Listen to this without any fear. That is mind-blowing. When we love like Jesus loved, when we live as He lived, when we display completed love, we will enter the judgment day with complete confidence, no fear. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of judgment in love, but perfect love casts out fear of judgment. That's what he's talking about in context. For fear of judgment has to do with punishment. <laughs> And whoever fears judgment, again, contextually, has not been perfected in love. He's saying that God's people will be confident because they convey his love. They they know that they couldn't do it any other way. Listen, God's love in you through others leads to confidence on the day of judgment. And it is a resting thought when you think of the day of judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, what? The judgment. It is a day on your calendar as real as your next dental appointment. You've already seen its shadows, you've already felt its weight. Say in what way? I think every person in this room would know this experience. Again, it's a shadow, it's not the reality but in that of something as simple and menial as final exams. Do you remember that? I mean, as fall comes to a close and winter, or whatever we call this season around here, arrives, have you not seen the distraught look of students all around as they are entering their midterm exams for college students, their final exams? Think back to those days. Remember what that was like? Uh, Your academic capacity tested, explored, probed, quantified, and then accepted or rejected. It's a shadow of judgment. You know you're going to be evaluated, and it places within us anxiety, fear, nervousness, Queasy stomach, sweaty palms, a scattered mind, and for what? A grade? A grade on a paper, uh, maybe the capacity to move on to the next grade in which you get to do it all over again, or as you get older, you get into the degree program that you want to get into, or you get the certification that you want, or maybe you can now work the job that you really want to have. I mean, what's a job? What's a certification? What is a report card in light of the final judgment day of God? If you feel that type of fear and anxiety and uneasiness about something so menial, how in the world are we supposed to have confidence and no fear in light of the day of judgment before God Almighty? And John, is this pie-in-the-sky reality, he just seems to think that we can have this. How? How do you have no fear? Can we really have that kind of closeness in our relationship with God? John says yes. You look to the proof of completed love. You recognize that God has so richly and abundantly poured his love into you that it has spilled out into other people. See, he can love you. He does love you because he sent his son to satisfy the bad grade, if you will. Jesus took your grades. He gave you his. And not only did he set the record straight, but on top of that, he gave you his mind and his heart. He gave you a capacity to love in a way that you never had before. And John says that is so unique. That is so unimitable that you should look to the love that's being displayed through you to others and know that everything's going to be good between you and God on the day of judgment. It's a complicated thought, but it's a powerful one. He explains it in greater detail in verse 19, just in case you don't get it. He says, we love, we love because he first loved us. Our love for others and our love for God isn't a sign of our own virtue. It's a sign of God's grace. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you see what he's saying? You cannot show this love to God apart from showing it through your brother. Another's Christian. Luther got it right when he said, God does not love because of our works. He loves because of his love. You didn't muster up love for Jesus and his people. Love to God and others is a reflection of God's love in Christ. Jonathan Edwards preached this text and I thought I was having a hard time with this I I, literally this was of all the sermons I've done in first John this one was probably the hardest I thought I was having a hard time because the first time that I wrote everything out my stuff was 18 pages Jonathan Edwards just gave up guess how long his sermon was on this text 84 pages (laughs) don't worry I'm not reading a single page But I will read this line because Edwards, while he's often attributed with theological acumen, was actually a fantastic illustrator. And he saw this passage as depicting that of a fountain. A fountain of of God's love. He says, love should return back to the fountain as God is infinite in love. He is the author of love and should be the object of it. He goes on to explain that it's a fountain because love comes from God to us and through us to others, back to God from us and through others. Do you see the pattern? You know you're wrapped up in the intimate love relationship with God as you reciprocate his love through showing it to his children. How do you know a fountain works? Because it visibly shoots forth God's love. How do you know that you are truly close to God? Because you visibly shoot forth his love to others. It's something clear, something tangible, like something you could actually evaluate. You could look back to last week and see whether or not you actually showed concrete acts of love to others. You know what he's doing here, and this is so brilliant, especially in light of what was going on in the day. John is warning us against mysticism. Mysticism. I, I seriously doubt anybody used that word this last week in your vocabulary. But I think you get the idea. There is this popular notion that's been around ever since the beginning that we can have some type of mystical, eerie, personal communion with God, just us and him. I would it a personal only relationship with God. Some people really do assure themselves of closeness to God on the basis of personal religious experiences. The idea that you can ascend into the heights of God's love personally and privately and profoundly to be lost, as it were, in a deeply personal and indescribable experience of loving God and being loved by Him. Why do you think the monks would move out into the mountains? They did it because they thought that they would have a more deeply personal and intimate relationship with God apart from other people. And somehow we've bought into the lie. We think, or can be tempted to think, that the richest expressions of our time with God are when we are by ourselves. And while indeed we can convey God's love privately in prayer, that is not the means that he has chosen for us to show his love or our love for him back to him. And that kind of vertical pursuit, horizontal things of this world, even the people of this world, can be a distraction from God. Listen, I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this in my own life where I was so committed to doing my personal devotions in the morning, spending my personal time with God, that I would literally be angry at my wife for interrupting wanting help with the kids. Uh, you've done it too. Stop laughing at me. I mean, you imagine the irony of the scene. What is your problem, woman? I'm spending time with Jesus. <laughs> Who's got the problem? God didn't say that I show my love to him through how much I can emotionally work myself up in a personal devotional time. He says that I show my love to him by loving his children. And by the way, every parent in the room knows how that goes. <laughs> how do you feel when you hear that story of that teacher who was supposedly bullying your child? I say supposedly because it's often... the misreported but the anger wells up in you nonetheless or that kid who was bemeaning them or mocking them in some way and it's just a fact of life you can't have a good relationship with me and ignore or be mean to my own children it doesn't work that way you will never Listen to me. You will never have some type of close relationship with God apart from meaningful, vibrant fellowship with His children. Never. He says, You are a liar. You need to be aware of mysticism, you need to be aware of intellectualism. Oh, a church like ours needs to be so careful of this. Listen, if if you're visiting here today, I want you to know something unashamedly about our church. We love sound theology. We love the Bible. We want to get it right in its context and that type of thing. And because of that, it can be easy for us to be so self-satisfied in our intellects (laughs) that we forget to express God's love to other people. Some people, and I've done this before, assure themselves of closeness to God on the basis of biblical knowledge. You can identify someone like this by how busy they are listening to podcasts, reading Christian books, commenting on Christian blogs, but they never seem to find any time to show love to God's children. They've got more important stuff to do. And John says, no, 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 no. Get it right. You are not. You are not showing love to God apart from also showing love to his children. Beware of mysticism, of intellectualism. And then, friends, please don't get this wrong. Please beware of legalism. What I am conveying to you in this text is the fruit of what God has done in us, not the root. Some people really do assure themselves of closeness to God on the basis of their good works. And while it may all sound the same, I need you to think carefully for a moment. There is a difference between operating out of love and out of legal obligation. It's one thing to love others out of the overflow, out of what God has given us, because God has loved us. It is something else entirely to love so you earn your way to heaven I think I'm going to scream if I hear another pastor give a positive illustration of Mother Teresa. And I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but I'm telling you, that woman was loving and trying to love as many people as she possibly could in some of the most radical of ways, but friends, she was trying to earn it. That's legalism. I know I'm not making any friends on Christmas, but talking about Mother Teresa, but listen. It is a subtle lie. Please, please, please don't walk out of here and think, all right, well, I'm just going to be a good person, and I'm going to go try to love other people, and I'm going to buy some extra Christmas presents this year, and I'm actually going to mean the Christmas cards that I write this year, and everything's going to be good between me and God. No, it doesn't work that way. This It's not something that you do to earn God's love. This is something that you do to demonstrate the love of God that has already been poured within you. And so John says, though, when you do see it, (laughs) when you know that you're not doing this to earn God's favor, but when you're showing love freely and fully to other believers, you, my friend, are wrapped up in the love of God. You abide in Him, and He abides in you. I remember being in—I think I was in Greece. I was on a missions trip, and it was so cool to hear in you know this this church, this language I really couldn't understand a song that I recognized even from my own childhood. It's got kind of a Slavic tune. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. We sing it here some, but we sing it with a different tune. But the first verse is just beautiful in the way it describes what God's love through Jesus does, not only in us, but through us. Notice this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. You know that feeling out in the ocean? I'm not talking about the gulf, I'm talking about the ocean. To be swept up in a current, to just be overwhelmed by the power of the sea, to be to be moved about to a different spot. I mean just totally not even being able to help yourself. You can't resist it, you just move. He's saying the love of Jesus is so powerful in your life that it is moving you to God's destination. And in the context of this text, it is moving you. It is compelling you. It is constraining you to show love to God's people around you. That's how you know that you've been caught up in the current of God's love. It pushes you. It compels you to show self-sacrificial love to other Believers, serving them, praying for them, seeking them out, helping them, encouraging them, ministering to them. And so, when I am confessing Christ, I know I'm close to God. As I am completing Christian love, I know I am close to God. Let me put this to a practical test. I want you to assess the quality of your relationship with God on a scale of zero to ten. Zero would obviously mean it's non-existent. You do not have a relationship with God. Ten would mean that it's perfect. I'll take a second because you don't get asked that question every day, I know. On a scale of zero to ten, what's your number? I, I can only imagine your answers. My my assumption would be that most of you would put something less than 10 and something more than zero. I mean, I know that statistically I'm doing pretty well there to imagine that. But, I mean, most, the reason why I say that is because most of us don't think that we're as close to God as we possibly can be. And at the same time, most of us also wouldn't say that we're as far away from God as we possibly could be. Right? See why? I would think that you would stay away from the zero and the ten. If I understand this text properly, there's a very real sense in which every one of us should be able to walk out of here with a ten. why for some this could sound blasphemous a ten perfect really why because he gave us his spirit why because he poured out his love do not get this text wrong it is rooted in God's initiative. Say, how? How do I know that I really have His Spirit? How do I know that I've really poured out His love? Well, we know because we confess Christ as Lord. Only someone who has been given the Spirit really confesses Christ as Lord. How do I know that God's love really has gone inside me, that he's poured it out on me? Because we complete or convey his love to other believers. Not because we're trying to earn something, not because we're trying to get into his good graces, but because he's been so kind to us and we want to show that love back in the tangible way that he is enabled through loving his people. You say, but I sinned but I struggle. Listen, friends, John has already made provision of this. Of of course you sin. Of course you struggle. But that's why you confess Jesus to be the Savior of the world. That's what he saved you from. I think the most dangerous group in this room right now would be anybody who answered like a nine or eight or a seven. And the reason why I say that is because you think that you're actually really close to God because of something that you did. You think that you could get to a 10 if you then fill in the blank. And I don't mean to be mean, and I'm not trying to keep you from being able to sleep well at night, but you may not even be a Christian at all. I'd actually be more encouraged by the people who put something at a 5 or below. Because at least you know that you need some type of intervention. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. We have to be so careful here, but the root of legalism is just so subtle. This idea that we are the ones that finish off the relationship with God. This is God's doing. It is His grace. Belief is the evidence that the Spirit is in us. Obedience is a fruit of of his love. That is why by the way friends it says that the fruit of the spirit is love. First one on the list. Not the root of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love. This is God's work and we see it in us as we believe and as we obey the command of love. Practically, friends, I would encourage you to walk out of here, if this is true of you, if this is true of you, to walk out of here, stepping into this week, energized and ready for whatever comes your way, because you know that God's love courses through you to others and back to him. You should be assured this week that you are caught up in the current of his love. You will pass the greatest test. Listen, I don't know what stresses you or what just freaks you out this week. I mean, maybe there's something on the calendar where you're thinking, like, I am not looking forward to that. That nervousness, that anxiety, that fear, that pit in the stomach, those sweaty hands. Whatever it is, what does that compare the God Almighty having brought you into the most intimate relationship with Himself. The greatest test you'll ever experience in your life past on account of what Jesus has done for you. God does not intend for his people to come in just slumped over and depressed all the time, although that is a reality. He intends for them to be confident of his love, not fearful that he's somehow or in some way going to take it away. Whether you're sleeping or resting or waking or working, God wants you to be settled, assured, confident, not unsettled or anxious or cautious. Finally, one other group I need to mention. I don't care what you put on the test, but I do need to say this. If you don't see any of these proofs in your life, I said everybody should walk out of here as a 10. Not everybody could walk out of here as a 10. If you don't see these evidences in your life, sin has broken your relationship with God. You've got a problem. That's why you can't say attend. But listen to this. Jesus has fixed it. He lived the righteous life you couldn't live. He died the death you deserved to die. He rose again to give you the power and the capacity to obey him in a way that you never could before. And as you believe in him, it is evidence that you have received the gift of his spirit. And if you have questions about that, and you you want that type of confidence with God this Christmas season, I would encourage you to talk to another church member around you. Come find me after the service if you need to, because there is no greater assurance in all the world than to know that things are right between you and your Heavenly Father. And in light of this, I know of no better way No better way to close our service today than to be reminded of our closeness to God through an event we call communion. (laughs) Communion. It's the very definition of abiding in God and God abiding in us. Mutual union celebrated in these signs